This is Esculapius, a podcast that uncovers the human side of our healthcare professionals. I'm your host, John Neary. Today, my guest is Dr. Georgios Biss. Dr. Biss is a fellow in the Department of Radiology at the Hospital for Special Surgery. He received his medical degree from Wayne State University School of Medicine and completed his residency in diagnostic radiology at the Baylor College of Medicine. Currently, as a radiology fellow, Dr. Biss focuses on musculoskeletal imaging, but his clinical and research interests have previously extended to cardiovascular and cancer imaging as well. George, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, John, for having me. I want to first discuss the clinical aspects of radiology. Um, some of the main tools you have as a radiologist are X-ray, CT, ultrasound, and MRI. Can you explain to our listeners under what circumstances you use each of these imaging modalities? Yeah, sure. So right now I'm in musculoskeletal in a fellowship. So um, we use X-ray, um, just you know your standard plain film to look at any joint. We use CT. Um, that's usually to follow fractures or for fracture follow-up. And then MR, which is to use for more like soft tissue detail. So if you need a knee or a shoulder and you really need to look at tendons um, and ligaments to assess for damage, um, that's where we use MR. In residency, however, every month we kind of covered a different subject. So you'd have a month of body, a month of chest, a month of breast, um, you cover the ER, etc. And probably the most um, common modality then is CT. You get a CT abdomen pelvis to look for any abdominal pathology, um, chest CT um, for infections, especially now with COVID. Uh, there's a ton of chest CTs being done to look for clots in the lungs or to see if someone has that kind of characteristic distribution for a coronavirus. Um, but yeah, basically when you want more detail, you're going to want to go for MRI and your essential tool right off the bat is going to be your x-ray. In terms of um, musculoskeletal imaging, can you talk about what that uh, what falls under that umbrella and then how that differs from, from diagnostic radiology as a whole? Yeah, so in residency, we would have our month of, you know, neuro, musculoskeletal, and by kind of doing this fellowship, you become more of an expert in just that one area. And so now what we do is image all the bones and the joints to assess for pathology. For example, you're in a skiing accident, or if you have a meniscal tear, or, um, you know, an ACL tear in your knee, um, you can look at hip pathology, like a hip, your hip labrum, your cartilage, you can assess if you need a joint replacement. Um, and the same concept is used. We also do a lot of spine imaging at HSS. And at the same time, we're able to do procedures. Um, so there's two ways of doing procedures, under fluoro, which is like a real-time x-ray machine, or under ultrasound, where you use the probe and you can find the pathology and you can do um, joint injections, um, things like that. Uh, you can inject some steroid around tendon sheets. So musculoskeletal is more, you know, not only figuring out what's going on with the patient, but it's also interesting because you could somewhat treat at the same time. 
Can you talk about more about the communication channel you have with physicians and surgeons as a radiologist? So I know, right, as a radiologist, you don't really see, uh, you have little to no patient interaction. So how do you, uh, first off, the, the first question there would be, like, what is this communication challenge with physicians? Like, are you kind of holding their hand in the sense that they don't know much about radiology? Or do they have a pretty good general background on, on what they're looking at when they look at MRIs or x-rays? Yeah, good question. So it depends. Um, if you're working in the ER, there's a bunch of subspecialties that might be, you know, putting in requests. Um, so in terms of the layover, I think that's what part of the question was. They kind of want the result fast. So whether there was just a trauma, you happen to be in the ER, um, the whole team is with the patient in the scanner and, you know, your computer where you can see all the images is usually right next door. So you can instantaneously give that team, give those providers all of the results. You can tell them what you see on the spot. When things aren't as urgent, you kind of have, you know, more of an outpatient kind of center where you can read from. And... I mean, with that, it depends who you're sending it back to. Most everybody in their specialty does have a good grasp of reading um, their own imaging, especially at HSS. Those orthopedic surgeons are phenomenal. So um, we're there to find, to kind of fine tune and to check, you know, all the tinier structures and make sure that we're not we're not missing anything. Um, our expertise also comes more in handy with cancer. Um, uh, you know, follow-ups, assessing chemotherapy, or just that incidental lesion that you might find that that referring doctor might not know. But, you know, having go through the training, I guess that's where really we can shine and add more benefit. I know a big thing physicians often reach out to radiologists about, at least in musculoskeletal imaging and MRI really is, uh, checking out for infection. Can you talk about um, sort of the process of, of looking for infection uh, on radiographs? Uh, sure. So it's always nice to have a comparison. Um, and that way you can see when someone was normal to tiny, tiny changes when something goes wrong. And when you see an infection, when you trace the cortex of the bone, you start to see little erosions or little reaction along the bone. And in the right setting, you could say that this this might be an infectious process. When you get more advanced imaging other than an x-ray, um, it could be quite obvious. For example, if you get an MR, it's just going to look bad. It's going to look, you know, really swollen, really edematous because of all that soft tissue detail that you're not getting on an x-ray. So in the MRI you're going to see just tons of edema, you're going to see changes in the skin, and if that infection went all the way down to the bone, you could see a change in the signal characteristic of that underlying bone, and then you can, you know, assess not only a superficial infection, but a deep infection as well. And then that would change, obviously, the antibiotic that that person would need. Are there any other uh, things like physicians or surgeons will reach out to you specifically about to check on, on radiographs uh, that they're kind of using, um, you know, you as a backstop to make sure they're not missing anything? Sure. So in 
immediately post-operative is a crucial time to make sure that nothing is left in the patient, any unwanted needles or instruments, etc. So they will call from the operating room and have a screen to make sure that there's no foreign body, you know, especially before they close. Usually then you see a drain or, you know, a sponge or something and you let them know. Um, other things on the spot, if they put a feeding tube, you want to make sure that's in the stomach. We just had a case where it actually went into the lung. So you want to be there to, you know, let them know proper position of tubes. If you get a line, um, usually that goes the right side of your heart. You want to make sure it's in good position. Um, when patients are intubated, you want to check the position of the endotracheal tube. So there's a lot, there's a lot of times that they call. Um, so these are more urgent findings. And then lately, I guess on call now for our hospital, um, you want to get back to them quick for a head CT, usually for a stroke or a chest CT to look for a pulmonary embolism. Those are probably the most common ways that they reach out to us. When you think about, um, you know, the tools, like I said, that you use for radiology, um, I imagine you have like a lot of routine cases, you know, things where your, your MRI, your x-ray, your CT is very effective and very, uh, you know, you can get, you can, you can get a, a, a fairly routine diagnosis just by using those tools. But are there other places where you're looking at maybe even specifically a musculoskeletal imaging where right now the research and the technology is there where you, where you say, you know, it, I, I can't really make an accurate diagnosis based on, uh, you know, MRI or, or, or whatever tool you're going with? Um, yes and no. Usually you can nail it right there on the spot. Certain instances where you can't, let's say there's a patient with pain and you think you find the cause, and you don't really know that's the cause, um, then you could kind of do a test injection with an anesthetic. So you kind of combine something more diagnostic to see, oh, you know, if we inject this, then truly, yes, this is where the pain is coming from. Because it's a mixed picture, uh, getting the diagnosis. You have, uh, you know, the referring physician who's there with the patient that does a physical, that does an exam. And then you have imaging findings that might not correlate at all. For example, you could have a herniated disc in your back and not even know it. It could be completely asymptomatic. So sometimes by doing more, like, interventional techniques, you can kind of cinch that diagnosis. If not, um, there's a few times you could refer to nuclear medicine. Um, they have a whole bunch of, you know, tests in nuclear medicine for that. And then when we don't know when something is, um, then you can also refer for a biopsy and actually get a, a tissue sample that way. Yeah, you just sparked another question in my head here in that uh, often when people come in to say like the hospital for special surgery or, or any musculoskeletal provider in general, right, that one of the big things is pain, right? So how much do you take into account pain and making your diagnosis when sort of when, when pain, you know, somebody saying they have pain is such a qualitative thing as opposed to a, a quantitative thing, right? It's kind of hard to pin down. People experience pain differently. Uh, the, the way they say they have pain is not necessarily the same person to person. Um, 
Yeah, exactly. So there's only so much that you can do, unfortunately. Um, usually our techniques are mixing a little anesthetic with the steroid. And, you know, hopefully that can give that patient relief for a few months. So that's what, kind of where the diagnosis comes in on, on imaging. You know, if something is surgical, then no matter what you do, like, you know, hopefully those injections can work for a few months. But if the underlying cause is, you know, something that's ruptured or something that has to be fixed, I mean, then, it, then you have to go to surgery for your best, you know, outcome with that sort of patient. One thing uh, from a patient perspective uh, that I know is always brought up in radiology is the radiation from CT and X-ray. And what mm-hmm. what should patients know about that risk and um, how much radiation they're getting when they receive those exams? So it's kind of, I know there's a lot of hype about it, and I agree. And you kind of want to limit the radiation, use as low as reasonably achievable, um, especially in pediatrics. So in pediatrics, they should not be using, you know, or to a minimum, like CT. CT has a lot of radiation for a kid, and we just don't know long-term what exactly that might do. So we want to limit it in children. However, you know, every woman over the age of 40 is going to need a mammogram. we know that these are safe. We know that, you know, your everyday chest x-ray, it's probably not going to hurt you. Ultrasound is another way to look at structures, and that has absolutely zero risk. There's zero radiation with that. So when we can use ultrasound to look at an abdomen or a joint, we should be using that. MR is also safe. There's no radiation with MR. So the tricky situation is if your female is pregnant, um, let's say you've been in an accident, that's up to that referring doctor to really make sure that they need that, you know, to make sure that that risk, those, the pros of, you know, missing something will outweigh the cons. Um, so basically, yeah, those two scenarios and with kids. But fortunately with kids, most things actually can be solved with just an x-ray or ultrasound. But, I mean, having said that, I mean, you get radiation every time you go on a plane. No one really thinks about that. True, this is a much higher dose. Um, but, yeah, that's kind of the way we think about it. Yeah, I think certainly people people get themselves in trouble looking on the Internet and not understanding, like, the, the, facts, the facts and actual risks associated with it. So I think as long as you're, you're under the supervision of a you know, a medical provider, you should be in good shape, right? Oh, yeah, true. Um, and basically, if you're ordering that CT, you have a specific reason. You know, there's an issue that you need. Um, and if it could be followed with another modality, I mean, sure, and then you follow it with something else. I want to talk a little bit more about your experience in radiology. Um, I guess, first off, can you describe how you, uh, you know, decided to go into radiology as a specialty? Uh, sure. So I switched my mind a few times. At first, I liked orthopedic surgery, and then I liked plastic surgery. And then having rotated in medical school, I kind of didn't like that surgeon lifestyle, and there's a demonic there. Um, it's called the road to happiness. And so R stands for radiology, O is ophthalmology, 
A is anesthesia, and D is for dermatology. So I kind of, you know, I always wanted to have a family and not, you know, be completely overworked. So I wanted to pick one of those with a better lifestyle. And, I mean, they're all important. I just couldn't get into ophthalmology, knowing like what we knew and how much we had to go through. Just the eyeball itself, I just couldn't do. Um, same thing with Derm, a great job, great profession. I just didn't have the passion to do that. So I was between anesthesia and radiology, and I was actually like 80% into anesthesia. And I switched out then my third year of med school after rotating through OBGYN, where I saw a bunch of CRNAs kind of doing the procedures, um, doing epidurals, and I was hesitant because I was worried that would potentially become a field of nursing one day and not a field of medicine. Even though there needs to be an anesthesiologist present, my understanding at that time was they kind of bounced and managed different operating rooms at the same time. And I didn't want to do that. I kind of wanted to be then someone, you know, someone I just felt more needed, I guess, as a radiologist because, you know, things are hard. You might open a chest x-ray as a doctor of internal medicine and not know what you're looking at. Um, these things are very difficult, especially peds. I mean, they look, they're, they're not like just little humans. They're like aliens. You gotta really know kind of what you're looking at. So I felt a little more job security. Um, although I did really like pharmacology and, you know, the surgery kind of aspect of anesthesia. I just thought it would be safe. And I also liked everything from head to toe. And radiology is literally everything from head to toe, whether it's, you know, neuro, chest, body imaging, breast, um, musculoskeletal. So I kind of kept that up. Um, I just kind of like the diversity of the cases at the, at the same time. So after the four years, so going into radiology, you have to do an intern year. Um, that was mostly in internal medicine. And then it was four years of radiology where you kind of learn, you know, the bulk um, of everything. And then this one-year fellowship is just more specialized within one area. And I guess maybe because I originally wanted to do orthopedic surgery is probably how I got into musculoskeletal radiology. Um, so, yeah, still, so I guess, working with bones and joints and part of more of those advanced imaging and interventional techniques now. Yeah, that's cool. I, actually, can you talk more about that intern year? What what kind of stuff do you do? You said it was mostly internal medicine. Is it just kind of a long internal medicine clinical rotation feel? Uh, yeah. So why they do that, I'm not sure. But if you go into a specialty, for example, if you go into surgery, you've got five years of surgery and you just go into it. Same thing for medicine. It's a three-year-long residency and you just start. Now, if you're doing a specialty like ophthalmology, anesthesia, derm, radiology, they kind of suck this intern year out of you before you go in. And during that year, you rotate, you rotate, like, I think I had three or four months on the floors in internal medicine. Um, you have a month in the ICU, a month in the CCU. You have a month in the ER. I had a month on surgery and outpatient, I think a month of, you know, outpatient medicine. And then I had a few electives, which I took radiology. 
The other thing I mentioned earlier, um, compared to other physicians, right, radiologists have little to no patient interaction. How do you feel about this aspect of radiology? Yeah, so I think that's not entirely true. There are patient interactions on every rotation, whether we're on neuro. I mean, you do a lot of lumbar punctures. We used to put intrathecal chemo um, basically into the patient's cerebrospinal fluid. Um, we had, you know, four months back-to-back in residency of interventional, so that was all abscess drainages, biopsies. Um, you know, we placed a lot of lines. We put in ports. We placed tunnel dialysis catheters. We did a lot of cancer work and a lot of trauma work as well. Um, so that's not entirely true. Like, yes, some days I could be diagnostic where you're just in front of a computer. But even now, about half of my weeks, I'm, you know, in a clinic and I'm seeing patients and I'm doing procedures on them. You could make it, I guess, more diagnostic if you would like. You could just kind of have that set up in your practice as part of your contract. But I like, I like getting up and I like, you know, interaction and seeing patients. Um, same thing on even with breast rotation. If they come in for their mammogram and you see something, there are some centers like mine in residency where that same day we could do an ultrasound. So you'd have to get up and do an ultrasound. And if you do see something in the breast, you can biopsy it at the same time as well. So there's definitely patient interaction. Okay. So you're even doing interventional procedures at uh, HSS? Yeah. Yeah, upstairs on the third floor, we have a full ultrasound department. We do a ton of tendon sheath injections and uh, joint injections. We do nerve studies. And then in flora, we do, you know, hip and knee aspirations. Like you were asking before, if you can't tell if something is infected, well, you could kind of put a needle into the joint and see if you, you know, suck out any fluid and see if there's any pus or anything that you then send to the lab. So that's another way of, oh, we don't really know what's going on here, so let's just, let's aspirate it. Let's see, let's see what comes out of that joint. So we do that, and then we do a ton of back injections as well. Nice. I, I imagine, I guess, with the injection stuff, do you, you work with a lot of anesthesiologists, pain management physicians, et cetera? Or is that sort of a... Uh, no, not usually. So the referring physician will pick the level based on their clinical exam, L3, L4, L5, and then the right or left side of the body. And then we will inject, we kind of base that nerve root as it comes out with uh, anesthetic and steroid. But the workup is, is, has been done before. We just place the medicine in the right spot. Okay, so... You're you're saying that the, the the work of those other you know pain management physicians has already been done in another point, or are you saying it's it's completely separate from whatever exactly, you're doing? Exactly. Yeah, they've they've seen the patient. They've assessed that you know it's coming from a nerve. If it's coming from a facet, you know we can inject the facet. If back pain is multifactorial, so I mean they're much better at clinical diagnosis, and usually they're spot on, and you know we kind of. We kind of go by what they order, the level and the side of the body. Gotcha. Another thing that's been interesting to me that I've been starting to hear more and more about in radiology is um, the role that machine learning and AI is going to play in it. 
Have you seen uh, evidence of this where, you know, machine learning is going to be used to sort of um, do more routine cases where, and then the radiologists are going to kind of work on the more, you know, nuanced, complex cases? Um, or is this something that maybe is still far in the, the future? I think it's far in the future. I think that you're still going to need an MD to sign off. I mean, you can probably train that machine, but there's a lot of nuances. I mean, based on seeing thousands of studies, you know if a patient is, like, imaged in a wrong orientation or a wrong position, you know, you still know how to look at that and assess. Or if something is covered, you kind of, you know, you have other views. I don't think a machine could ever be that smart, so it's going to definitely have to be double-checked. Um, but I, I have heard promising things with that. And at least, I don't know, maybe if they can, you know, help on some of the easier studies, and then you can just kind of double-check that computer's work, I think that would be awesome. But I don't know how they would do something more advanced. Yeah, I think exactly what you're saying, right? The feedback I've gotten with uh, um, somebody I was talking to, he, he's working kind of on some software for something like this for a healthcare company. And he's saying that, yeah, it's really just to take some of that workload off the, the radiologists that they currently have with, with more of this routine stuff and let them do, A, more of the complex diagnostic cases, and I guess also perhaps more interventional stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty cool. I'm all for that. Um, the other thing I find interesting about you and I wanted to talk about more is your, your Greek heritage and how that informs your perspective on healthcare. I actually went on a, oh, sure. on a study abroad trip to Greece where we discussed, you know, Asclepius, the God of Medicine, Hippocrates, and just really the, the Mediterranean lifestyle as a whole. And, uh, you know, a lot of that is, is the pillars of that, right, is sort of this uh, convivial eating, so, so socializing, ample physical activity, and, like, of course, the, the Mediterranean diet. So... Do you think that we're missing some of this in our in our healthcare system? And if so, how can we flip the needle on it? Um, yeah, I can answer that. First, I'm curious, where did you go when you studied abroad? I went to, uh, I was, it was for two weeks, real short stint, uh, Athens oh. and um, Nathplio, which was more of a, a short town. I don't know if you... Oh, nice, nice. Yeah, there's like a castle up there. And, uh, yeah, you've been there? <laughs> Yeah, I've been there. Yeah, in like high school. Beautiful. Yeah, nice. Um, yeah. Well, first, Greek kind of helped just with medical terminology. Growing up, I had to go to Greek school, and you know, my grandparents spoke Greek, so instantly I was slightly ahead and just understanding some of the medical terms because I just kind of knew what the disease was before even hearing it. Greek definitely helps with that. Um, and then, yeah, I think I, I read an article, um, came out a few years ago about, there was one certain island where all these, all these people were living like into their dying days and like, I think they said like some certain pops, like the amount of people over a hundred was like more than anywhere else in the Mediterranean. And they're wondering why. And that guy, one guy that they interviewed basically said what you said, like, you know, they don't eat processed foods. They don't get stressed. You now there's there's a, a mix of, you know, your mind and your body. 
when you're eating, I guess, a lot of olive oil. I think that definitely helps with inflammation. Yeah. You eat a lot of nuts, walnuts. I mean, their diet is is pretty lean. Uh, a lot of fruits, a lot of vegetables. Um, I think low consumption of wine, that's also in there in the Mediterranean diet. That That's controversial. I'm going to stick with yes, go with it. Glass, <laughs> don't hurt you. Right on. Um, what else? Yeah, unfortunately, there's a lot of more smokers out there. But, I mean, the pure Mediterranean diet, yeah, it's essential. It's uh, proven. It's anti-inflammatory. You're going to want to eat a lot of fish, a lot of omega-3s. Um, yeah, I guess it works. And then psychologically, too, you need a, a good support system. You know, um, the country's orthodox. A lot of people, I would say, are more religious than um, in America. So whether they get that social interaction from there or from another community, I think that definitely plays a role. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, you, I mean, you basically outlined the curriculum of the, the course we took right there. <laughs> so I, it's definitely sort of, uh, it sounds like it's embedded sort of uh, in the culture. I'm myself of Italian heritage, so we got some of that Mediterranean influence as well. And I know, unfortunately, it, it kind of uh, gets diluted a bit in this, here in the States. Um, but going back to sort of the, the question, though, do you think this can... How can we bring a little bit more of this to our healthcare system? You know? Um, I guess that would be on the level of primary care. Because it's not going to be, you know, your surgeon who's going to advise this when they're about to take out your appendix. And it's not going to be really your OBGYN. And it's not going to be your, maybe it's your neurologist. If you've had a stroke, you want to, you know, eat healthier. But it's probably going to come down to the primary care level probably a good time during your physical, you know, kind of, kind of bring up those points that, that fish and nuts and, you know, that sort of thing. It's probably beneficial. Limit that fast food. Um, exercise is medicine as well. So yeah, take the stairs, walk when you can. I mean, they're common sense things, but they, they actually work when you exercise. It's, you know, angiogenesis, you get new blood vessels around your heart. I mean, this, this stuff is proven. You know, if you have a blockage that you exercise, that might save your life one day if you have a collateral, you know, pathway. So you never know. How do you incorporate the Mediterranean lifestyle into your own life? Um, I guess it was just built in growing up. I mean kind of had a lot of Greek food my whole life, a lot of spinach pie, um, <laughs> a lot of fruits and a lot of vegetables. So I, it's not really like incorporating, it's just kind of my palate at this, at this stage of my life. So I feel like I have to point out to your our, our listeners that uh, your middle name is Constantine, which is, you know, proves that we're listening to uh, the OG, <laughs> the straight from the source. My, uh, I actually, yep. <laughs> uh, my longtime neighbor who, who no longer lives across the street from me, he, um, his name was Constantine and he actually played for the Greek national water polo team. Um, oh, sweet. yeah. And then he became the, the water polo coach over at Princeton. 
So, uh, oh, cool. I d- definitely, a, definitely a good name. So, I might have to name my kid Constantine. Go for it. <laughs> yeah, my first name was a no-brainer because we have to. You have to name your child basically after your father's father, and both of my grandparents are named George. So, oh, no-brainer for me. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I'm going to give you a series of fast-paced questions that tell us more about you. Um, so what's your favorite place to travel in Greece? Um, so my grandparents' hometown is Nafakos, and that's about two and a half hours west of Athens. And it's right in the middle, but it's on the water. And it's beautiful. There's crystal clear beaches. There's a castle incredible food there's good nightlife um and also when i go i like going out to the islands so ionian islands are really really gorgeous really mountainous really green and they have some of the best beaches ever um those are kind of on the coast like facing italy on the west coast and then all of the cyclades i mean every time you go you get more ideas about coming back and you know a new trip somewhere else I try to go almost every summer, so I've been a lot throughout my life. Wow, that's awesome. Somebody was telling me that a really good island to go to is Mykonos. Have you been to Mykonos? Um, yeah, it's a little, it's um, more like the Miami kind of oh, yeah. uh, Greece. Uh, it's definitely going to be more luxurious and, you know, more party-centered. Oh, they yeah. have gorgeous beaches there. Um, it's going to be more expensive than the other Greek islands, but yeah, definitely. If you're going to go your first time, you're going to go, you're going to see Mykonos and you're going to go to Santorini and you're going to love them. And then I guarantee you're going to, you're going to go back in the future to another island. Sounds good. Uh, another thing we haven't mentioned yet, you're, you're a Michigan Wolverine. So yes, uh, go blue. what's your favorite thing to do in Ann Arbor? Um, it's funny. So I just went through to kind of see how the city, to see what's changed, and it's completely changed. Granted, I was in, you know, four years in Texas and one year in New York, so obviously any place is going to change. But I don't know if you've been there recently, but a lot, a lot has changed. There's a lot of new restaurants everywhere. I used to live kind of behind Main Street. Main Street's pretty much looks the same. There's a few new spots. still has its charm. You know, well capped. Um, but on campus, right where the Espresso Royale is, uh, there's like a ton of more like gorgeous housing and apartments. Yeah. Like it, that's all gone up. Charlie's got a facelift. I mean, all of East U looks pretty, pretty new. Um, the housing and all that, I think, is pretty standard. That's nothing really changed there. But yeah, the city, the city looks beautiful. So what's your favorite thing to do there, though? Um, basically see friends. Um, remember, it used to be a really big foodie city. Um, can't really enjoy that now with coronavirus. But, yeah, going out, trying new places. Um, we're a big fan of skeeps. <laughs> <laughs> um, the occasional football game. Yeah, walking through the diag, getting coffee, all that. That's funny. The last... Uh Wolverine I had on said they were a big fan of Rick's, so go figure. Um, last thing I wanted to ask you was, 
the what's the biggest change you uh, see coming to radiology this decade, the, the 2020s? Um, let's see. Right now, I'm involved in a few projects. One is looking at the cartilage in the thumb to see if that correlates to um, clinical outcomes. Um, so we can use MRI to look at uh, like cartilage mapping, um, especially it's kind of interesting given everyone using their phones on their cell phone, uh, you know, to text and all that. Who knows? Maybe in 40 years we're all going to need, you know, first carpal metacarpal joint injection. Um, but other than that, we just develop new, new techniques, nothing groundbreaking, let's say. There's another um, paper I'm working on. It's if you look at your hand, kind of where your hand where your where your hand rests when you're on a mouse, there's like a, a bony prominence there, and people get pain there. That's your piezotriquetral joint. So we're looking at a way to you know inject that to kind of put a needle behind that bone, put in the steroid to get the pain there. But uh, no, nothing, nothing so crazy. I would say um, there's there's a lot of work, as you know, you're better than this. Uh, um, I am working in the MRI lab. Um, imaging patients around metal, uh, which is super cool. If you have a knee replacement or hip replacement and you need imaging, not a lot of places will put you in their scanner and there'll be so much artifact. So with what you're working on and everybody at HSS, that you can get super pristine imaging like around metal. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's relatively new within the last few years. So I think that's the biggest change recently and and musculoskeletal, that's definitely important. The MRI lab uh, appreciates the shout-out. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dr. George Biss, thanks for joining the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Anytime. If you uh, have any other questions, let me know. That concludes this episode of Esculapius. Till next time, I'm your host, John Neary. Be well.